You're listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce and regional leader in higher education, Mount Wachusett Community College. The business world is more competitive than ever, and running a business has never been more challenging. The North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce is here to help with trusted resources, a strong business network, and a support system to keep your business and North Central Massachusetts moving forward. We invite you to join the nationally recognized North Central Massachusetts Chamber today. Call 978-353-7600 or visit northcentralmass.com. Hello and welcome to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. Travis Condon, Kat Deal from the North Central Massachusetts Chamber, joining you from the Chamber offices today. And our guest for this week's podcast is calling in from his office. And Kat, who is our guest today? Our guest today is Dr. Mark Melnick. Mark is the Director of Economic and Public Policy Research at the UMass Donahue Institute. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. I know we're online, so we're not in person, but we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Oh, no problem. Um, uh, thanks for the invite. It's uh, always fun to talk to uh, you folks over in North Central. Well, Mark, we're happy to have you here. And for those folks that may have seen or heard you on different chamber events or whether they're remote or in person beforehand, you know, we hear a lot about what you do at the UMass Donahue Institute, but I don't think folks realize um, your background and what got you into this type of work. Uh, can you tell us about your personal history and how it um, ended up that you're at the UMass Donahue Institute? Sure, of course. Uh, yeah, so... Um, like you guys introduced, I'm Mark Melnick, and I direct economic and public policy research at the Donahue Institute. I'm a, a transplant to the New England area, actually. I, I spent the first half of my life uh, in northeast Ohio in a city called Youngstown. Uh, Youngstown's a old steel town, and I date back, uh, you know, where I'm from because it, it was really so formative in, you know, developing my view of the world and where my career ultimately went. Growing up in, in Northeast Ohio in the late 70s and early 80s uh, was really typified for a lot of families with the closing of the steel mills. And mm-hmm. I tell folks often that Black Monday occurred, which was in September 1977, right after my parents had bought the house I ultimately grew up in. And my mom was pregnant with me and my dad's home from a midnight shift at the mills. And he just announces to my mom, dude, I, I just lost my job seeing it on television. And uh, that story really colorized a lot of the, the background of my childhood. It was just seeing that struggle of working people trying to make ends meet in the community where jobs disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for working class families in Northeast Ohio and in a place like Youngstown, that was a, a big part of the story in the 70s and the 80s. So I grew up working class and ultimately went to Youngstown State University, which is a you know, mid-sized commuter school in town and majored in sociology was really um, riveted by just, again, the, 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 the impact on families and on people when work disappears. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, really what drove me into economic sociology and urban sociology. When you major in sociology, you're majoring in grad school, of course. <laughs> I ended up <laughs> moving, uh, moving to Boston in, uh, in 2000 to go to a PhD program in Northeastern with, and in particular to work with uh, Professor Barry Bluestone. Barry was one of the original, uh, it coined the, the phrase deindustrialization in the early 80s. And one of his most famous books uh, had a segment specifically on Youngstown. So I felt really drawn to working with Barry. And while I was there, 
discovered the Dukakis Center, or what it was called at the time, the Center for Urban and Regional Policy at Northeastern, and really was excited by this kind of applied social science research that was done for different kinds of clients. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of academic research can be a little esoteric or boring. There's like a so what quality about like, well, yeah, that's an interesting fact, but w- what does that mean for people? And really wanted to get, I really wanted to get into kind of social science research that had a, a broad application to folks and could influence public policy. And that's how I got working uh, at the Dukakis Center. And then as I was finishing my dissertation, I landed at the Boston Redevelopment Authority and as the deputy director for research there. I spent seven years at the BRA and learned a ton inside and out about the neighborhoods of Boston and, you know, the, the socioeconomic issues that, that um, uh, kind of define our region. And then uh, after seven years there, I was uh, recruited over to the Donahue Institute and uh, been there since t- 2014 and get to run a really fun research shop with, uh, with a group of 24 professionals that do all kinds of demographic, socioeconomic, economic, and other kinds of public policy research with uh, clients mainly in Massachusetts, but really we could do work all over. But it really allows us to do some really cool and interesting things with folks all around uh, all around the Commonwealth. You know, Mark, I have um, asked you and heard you speak at a lot of events um, for us talking about the economy, but I have to say that I've never known your background. I, uh, I truly understand why you went into this and your perspective on what the workforce initiatives and workforce policy and development and protecting the workers. I understand where you come from on such a different level. And I love that you took a family history and a family story and said, you can help and make it better. And I love the fact that you are continuing to do that work. And now you're at the Donahue Institute. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Donahue Institute. They're very lucky to have you. And I love the fact that you have a great staff that works there. We have worked with the Donahue Institute through the chamber several times. But could you give the listeners a little bit of information on what the Donahue Institute does in terms of research and policy and the studies that you produce? Absolutely. So so the Donahue Institute is a... Uh, is a first and foremost the public service institute at built out of the UMass system. We originally, for the first 50 years of our existence, were part of the UMass president's office, and then back in the summer of 2020, we were administratively moved to the UMass Amherst campus, which has um, kind of deep roots to the organization already because our home office was actually in, in Hadley, Mass. So we do have a Western Mass. Do have uh, significant Western Mass roots for the organization, and we just recently got to celebrate our, our 50th birthday. Plus one, COVID got in the way, so the party had to get <laughs> postponed a year. But it was, uh, you know, really great to celebrate just all the years of, of impactful work that the institute has done and you know continues to do in the present. Our, our mission, and we just kind of did a uh, organizational renewal as we were thinking about what the next 50 years looks like for the Donahue Institute and. And in our, in our mission, we, we say that uh, we're here to advance equity and social justice, foster healthy communities, and support inclusive economies that alleviate poverty and promote opportunity around the Commonwealth and beyond. We envision an inclusive world where all children, youth, adults, and communities can thrive. So 
those are some pretty high-minded ideas, but it, it, it um, translates into a number of different kinds of work. Uh, we have 170 employees of the Institute across nine different business units. So I just leave one of those business units, economic and public policy research. But broadly, our work kind of uh, splits into two main pieces. There's my colleagues who do uh, what, I, what I often refer to as like service work that have contracts with different federal or state agencies that are specifically geared towards helping different populations. So for example, we run the Career Center in Brockton as part of the mass hire system. And that, that Career Center works with helping uh, folks who've been disconnected from the labor market upskill or find uh, new job opportunities. We run a, uh, the Region 1 Technical Assistance Center for Head Start. And Region 1 is, is New England, so providing technical assistance and training for the different uh, grantees in the region. We also run a national head start on performance management and fiscal operations. These are parts of the Institute that don't receive a lot of news in the media because they're servicing a contract and there's a kind of, you know, almost back office feature to it. But they're doing important work that is, you know, a, a part of a contract that's, again, helping different kinds of communities. This other part of the Institute uh, that, uh, that our work falls into is more in the consulting uh, vein, where we are working with different kinds of clients to define their issues and problems, and then using, you know, academic expertise in research or other kinds of things to uh, bring to bear on what we would describe as real-world social problems. My group, Economic and Public Policy Research, is probably the most well-known part of the Donahue Institute. And I think it's because a lot of the work that we do is very front stage. We're working with different kinds of clients and state government, municipal government, regional planning agencies, and so on to do all manners of applied social science research. I, I mentioned before, I have a team of 24 folks and we have people with backgrounds in business, sociology, economics, planning, geography, and so on. And our work kind of mirrors that, where we are doing different kinds of, of applied social science research that, that falls into the, all those different kinds of demographic, socioeconomic, and other kinds of public policy issues. But some of the big clients we've worked with in the past include you guys, North Central Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we do work with uh, the Secretary of the Commonwealth. Um, we do work with the Boston Foundation, City of Boston, City of Cambridge, um, and, and Cape Cod Commission, uh, the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission, and so on. So the work really, much like New England weather, you know, changes every day <laughs> uh, because we're responding to the needs of the clients and what they're looking for out of their work. And and again, I find it really fun and, and interesting because we get to work in almost every nook and cranny of Massachusetts and really got to learn a lot about the different regional challenges that, that exist all, all throughout the state. And so, Mark, we recently worked with you on our workforce development study, uh, looking at workforce challenges that employers and the entire region's facing out here in North Central Massachusetts. And I was wondering if you could kind of briefly talk about the process that went into that study. How did you find out the research? You know, I, you're based out in Western Mass and you deal with all parts of the state. But when you come into a region like North Central Massachusetts, what was the process like to figure out exactly what these challenges are and how to best approach solutions to them. Right. Well, you know, there's a, a number of things that, that kind of go into that. You know, we've uh, been regular partners with the chamber at different points in time. I've met uh, Roy at uh, different events and, and, you know, I've been invited to speak at, at things. You know, one of the things that we do out of the Institute is 
produce a journal twice a year called Mass Benchmarks. And Mass Benchmarks is the journal on the Massachusetts economy. And, and we take up, you know, secondary data and other types of uh, academic research and kind of translate that into actionable data and research for public policy practitioners and so on. So we get very comfortable with some of the existing secondary data that are out there and then develop research methods that match the kinds of questions that, that um, our clients are looking for. So in this example, Roy had reached out to us and he had a, a really exciting idea about what he was calling a, a, a thought exercise on you know, recognizing some of the challenges in uh, maintaining a adequately sized and growing workforce in the region and wanted to have a document that, that analyzed that problem but then thought through what kinds of solutions there might be on the other side. So with that, you know, we were intimately familiar with these concerns of the, what uh, labor market analysts will often refer to as a silver tsunami or the aging of the baby boom population and what that was going to mean for the size of the labor force in the future. Mm-hmm. This is a, uh, uh, an acute problem in the North Central region, but not unique. There's a lot of places around the whole, the whole entire country will be faced with different elements of labor shortage issues. But what we wanted to do out of this research was one first outline dem- the data on demographically what was the challenge that we were facing in, in North Central in terms of changes in the residential labor force size? And then, you know, do more of a qualitative analysis of, you know, what are some policy initiatives that other regions have undertaken and or partners to the North Central Chamber within the region that could be used uh, that are either in their infancy or could be used in the future to help support growing the labor force. So for us, you know, how we came up with that method was really kind of talking it through with with Roy as the client and understanding, well, what is it that you want to know? And from there, figuring out, like, what's the best way for us to, to know this and tell the story? And especially when the goal on the backside was to have a series of, of recommendations that would be geared towards, you know, and as I described it, I think at the event of several months ago was make working easier for people. And that was, uh, you know, tied both to encouraging greater labor force participation from populations with low labor force participation today, as well as building the scaffolding to make work easier and increase labor force participation for people in the future. And Mark, one of the things I, I know a lot of people took away from the study was this whole concept of hidden workers and future workers. Looking at those two different groups, can you talk a little bit about the differences and, and why it was important to highlight both of those as, as we work to address this workforce challenge? One of the things about this that was important to us was to define both the short-term and the long-term set of goals for the for the region to grow labor force size. And that's where the the notion of hidden workers and uh, future workers came into play. When we were thinking about hidden workers, hidden workers were, uh, we defined as people who were there in the population now, but are not working for any number of reasons. We wanted to shine a light on this because this was one of the key elements that we were seeing in the labor force as the COVID crisis started to recede. 
we had a lot of popular stories that were happening in the press that would suggest things like, oh, people just don't want to work right now, or people are being paid not to work from the bonuses for the unemployment insurance that, that some workers were getting early in the pandemic. And that really was not an accurate way of describing what was occurring in, in the workforce in general. On on an individual level, there may have been instances where a person maybe didn't want to work or an employer was having a hard time filling certain roles. But in the aggregate, what we were really seeing is that the actual labor force size in the state had gotten smaller relative to the period of time before the pandemic. Why did this happen? Well, in a pandemic, more deaths happened. So we had more workers who had died. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second and probably most important one is that while uh, we stopped the world for two years for a pandemic, we kept getting older. And what happened was more and more people were leaving the labor force and we were having less workers in retiring and then we were having uh, less workers to draw from. So this was creating pressure for employers. This is where the hidden workers thing was really critical to us, but was identifying what parts of the population were available to work, but their labor force participation rates were particularly low. So thinking specifically about folks with limited educational attainment, people with disabilities, veterans, uh, people who were previously incarcerated. These are all populations in, in the workforce that have low labor force participation rate and strategic things that could be done to upskill these populations or make work easier mm -hmm. or remove barriers such as different things about Corey and, and you know, stereotypes about people who maybe have... Um, uh, a criminal record. How do we mm -hmm. help increase labor force participation for this group? Because even an increase of five or ten percent would yield a ton of potential workers. Mm -hmm. On hidden workers, uh, as I would uh, talk about this in the meetings with the staff, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. But you could think about how to fill your worker needs now. But we also want to be thinking ten, fifteen years from now, and how are those kids? Right. How are they plugging in the labor market, and how are we preparing that population for? Uh, the economy of the future. And I think what's really central within all of this is everywhere is going to be facing critical labor shortages in the future because of the aging of the baby boom population. Mm -hmm. So being thoughtful and strategic about how to increase labor force participation among groups who do not participate at high levels now is just both a moral imperative for uh, uh, increasing upward mobility in different populations but also just smart business, because as it is, we're just not going to have enough workers to grow our workforce in the future. Yeah. And Mark, when you complete a study like this and you put it out, obviously the chamber is using this for its advocacy efforts, but for businesses and even other communities, can they also take this research and, and the solutions that you propose in there and, and run with it the same way you hope that the chamber would? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things that really excited me about this project with, with you all is that as Roy was outlining his, his vision for this, one of the things that jumped in there is like, hey, you're going to be the first out there talking about this. Is that, you know, frankly, every region in Massachusetts could be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. North, Central, North Central is maybe a little bit unique because its median age is above the state median. Uh, and because when we project using Donahue's population projections, um, when we project out to 2050, we actually project a, a, a small labor force decline mm -hmm. in North Central. But, you know, take that over to the Pioneer Valley, take it over in the northern Middlesex, take it down to Cape Cod. You know, these issues are going to be 
uh, all over the state. So there may be different things that, that, will, uh, that stand out in North Central, for example, with the prisons locally, there's like a real, there's a high proportion of folks in the region right now who are, who are incarcerated. Uh, they may not necessarily be from the region, but the existence of a prison population nearby is a bit unique to the region. So maybe thinking about what incarceration maybe might mean to, or uh, removing barriers for previously incarcerated folks, what that might mean to labor force size. Mm -hmm. But I think this, this issue of wrestling with how to um, find more labor to support your businesses is definitely uh, one that the, the entire state faces, New England faces, and frankly, mm -hmm. the, most of the rest of the United States. Yeah, I agree. I think that the workforce labor and um, the upcoming workforce issues are absolutely all over the United States. And that's why studies like this and studies at the Donahue Institute produces are so important for our businesses to move forward, where to look for labor, how to prepare for labor, how to talk to our up and coming um, labor force and, and, and how to look at that. And I think that this study definitely can be looked at and used across Massachusetts or across the, the United States. And I think that it's an important study for us to have done. And we really appreciate it. I know that. And I know that people have taken to reading the 80 pages, but it's chock full of such great information. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back right here on the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. Why should your business be a member of the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce? It's actually quite simple. The Chamber is dedicated to protecting and promoting the local business community. Our primary goals? To advance the region, help business owners network and grow, and to advocate on behalf of the business community. Joining the Chamber makes good business sense. We invite you to join the nationally recognized North Central Massachusetts Chamber today. Call 978-353-7600 or visit northcentralmass.com. Welcome back to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast, Travis Condon, Cat Deal, and we're joined today by Dr. Mark Melnick. He's the Director of Economic and Public Policy at the UMass Donahue Institute. I imagine, I mean, that you have been asked by many different entities um, to do studies. Are there any studies that have stood out to you, without giving away too many details, obviously, um, over the years yeah. that you guys have produced that really stood out as, you know, an interesting project or fascinating? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, every year we do about 40 projects and so there's uh and they vary in size. Uh, and what's exciting is that this, it's a, we're learning new stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. I think some of the stuff that uh, I'm particularly proud of in recent years, uh, we've really carved out a significant line of work around different housing issues in Massachusetts. Yeah. We've uh, been a part of the Greater Boston Housing Report Card at different points in time with the Boston Foundation. And then we also developed a, a, a wonderful set of reports with the Greater Springfield region and Wayfinders out there looking at some of the housing issues in, in Greater Springfield. I was particularly excited about that work because most of the conversations around housing in the state focus on Greater Boston. And so it was important for us to, to really shine a light on where some of these other challenges exist. And so when you think about the Pioneer Valley and Greater Springfield in particular, the overall housing costs are, are actually low compared to other parts of Massachusetts. But what's important is that a lot of the challenges that people face are, are the same uh, because wages tend to be lower out mm -hmm. in that part of the state as well. Mm -hmm. 
So the pressure points on families hit just the same. And so if you just look at that high, uh, that, that top line item of like, oh, well, median house prices are so much lower in greater Springfield than greater Boston. It's like, yeah, but so are the wages. Right. And you have a lot of folks out there who are renters, who are housing burdened. Half of the renters in Massachusetts and including an over half in greater Springfield are what uh, we would call housing burdened, or they're spending more than 30% of their income on housing. And what we do know from a, from just a economic and research perspective is that housing is such a critical element to generational wealth creation and the ways in which in, in the housing gap that we see in Massachusetts and places like Greater Springfield with uh, lower home ownership rates for black and brown folks really perpetuates the, uh, the wealth disparity that we see. So it's something for us that I've been really proud to continue to put our, our, our voice on. The other smaller project I'd love to mention was actually one that we kind of came up with ourselves. And early in the pandemic, one of my staff members was working with a friend who was a journalist at, at the local Brockton paper. And this is in April of 2020. And uh, it, this uh, journalist was doing like really shoe leather journalism. He was calling different municipal uh, public health boards and asking how many COVID cases they had in their community. And this analyst shared the data with said, Hey, check this out. Um, you know, my roommate made all these phone calls and, and got these data. And mm-hmm. I, I said, wow, that's really interesting. We should, uh, the elevated numbers are all the gateway cities. You know, I'd love to map this and compare this with some of the existing data from the Census Bureau just to see the relationship between socioeconomic indicators and and the outbreak. And, and things that we were seeing was the, the close concentration of COVID outbreak in communities with uh, higher poverty rates, high concentrations of immigrants, uh-huh. uh, um, um, uh, the um, density, communities with a lot of density. And some of that makes sense. But the one that was most predictive was overcrowded housing. So early in the pandemic, you had a lot of these like, you know, dumb, dumb news stories about like, oh, is this the death of cities and people aren't gonna <laughs> wanna live in cities anymore. And, and of course, a, a, a airborne disease is more likely to spread in places where people are congregated. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was really important in this is that it was in communities where there was overcrowded housing where the spread was most acute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people don't live in overcrowded housing because of, on purpose. They do it for economic reasons, right? So in places like Chelsea, Lawrence, where we would have more people per room on average, this is where the outbreak was most significant. Even, you know, places like Somerville or Cambridge, which are very dense places, Mm -hmm. their COVID outbreak was much lower. And we were the first folks who got out there and and, and drew drew that connective tissue between overcrowded housing and COVID and was really just kind of accidentally uh, exploring some of the data that was out there, especially in a time when it was kind of a data desert. No one knew anything about COVID yet. Mm -hmm. And so that was a lot of fun to be contributing to that kind of conversation so early. That's really interesting that you guys found that data. And now, Mark, as we look at the, the, you know, the state of the current economy and you look at housing challenges in Massachusetts and workforce challenges, which we looked at in our workforce study, as we look to navigate this post-COVID economy that everybody talks about, how crucial is it that communities really start looking at the research from the UMass Donahue Institute or, or other studies and actually start applying um, these solutions and having these conversations around these findings? It's the most important thing people could possibly do is hire us to do research for them. 
which of course is <laughs> higher I, I, mark. I'm kidding, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, higher the Donahue Institute. No, I, I, you know, I've always been somebody who um, appreciate. Well, obviously, because I got into this for a career, but it, it's like you know, decision making with data. I, I don't know how else you do it, right? And mm-hmm. and for for me that you know, recognizing that public policy is also kind of the art of the possible in a lot of cases. I think being able to look at data, look at evidence, make sound decisions with with that information, but then also translate that information to users who are not sophisticated data consumers so that they're able to make decisions with that data. And I think that's the difference for the kind of what we do in our work and maybe what a more purely academic research shop might do, where um, for me, the most important thing is uh, is a client having actionable information. You know, we were just on a phone call with a client this morning on a project that's not done yet. And, you know, we were reviewing the study results. And then we were thinking about alternative or additional analyses to add to it because they ultimately want this work to be part of a planning document for them. And when you're doing planning, you're doing, uh, you're thinking of different scenarios, right? And so how do you come up with scenarios that are, that are data driven? So I think that for us, um, you know, that's the sweet spot for getting to do this kind of work. And I think it is critically important because we're in a world that is, that is ever changing and having more real time data and, uh, and being more thoughtful about how you or thinking about the world around you is just uh, is just sensible in terms of proactive public policy development. Yeah, and I love the fact that you mentioned that this is, you know, having the study and having the data is great, but translating it into something that everyone can read and use and maybe benefit from, I think that's one of the very key things that you guys do is that you do make this accessible for everyone. And so, Mark, As an economist, I have a question. Everyone is talking about the big R word recession. And Mm. I'm just curious what your take is on how this is going to play out and what we're looking at for a recession and how we can, how businesses and how just everyone can help themselves. Right. So I don't think there's ever been a moment in the economy quite like this one where, uh, we continually talk about the likelihood of a recession, but at the same time, the labor market indicators are of a of an economy that's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's obviously a psychology to markets as businesses and as households get nervous about what's going on with the economy. They start trimming their sales a little bit, and that almost helps induce the recession that you were worried <laughs> about. But I feel like that's one part of the stew. And then obviously what's been going on with inflation uh, is another, you know, where it does feel as if inflation has been calming a little bit or stabilizing a bit, but the prices are, prices are still elevated Mm -hmm. uh, and households are still feeling that pinch. And I think that there's some really unique problems as they relate to Massachusetts. I mean, for example, our inflation rate in the state is pretty similar to the nation year over year, but Year over year, our home energy or our energy costs have increased 36%. And I know that in just anecdotally in my own community, like we were in a um, community um, energy purchase uh, plan and the contract ended. So we had a new one the next, the next month that started up and my, our electric bill almost went up, almost doubled. 
I'm like, <laughs> so I had to remind uh-huh. the kids, you guys, you guys really got to start turning the lights off. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that these are these are kind of those underlying factors that I, that I think really give a lot of stress to like what's what's happening in the economy right now. The end of 2022 was actually pretty strong for the state compared to the nation, and probably buoyed some of our thinking at Mass Benchmarks about if and when a recession is going to occur, although the projections that, that we have right now in mass benchmarks does show considerable slowing in the economy in the early part of 2023. I'm somewhat evasive about whether or not I think there will technically be a recession. You know, uh, usually when a recession is, decli- is declared, it's after it's already over. And it and it's usually and it's you know because there's the official um, federal designation of it from the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research. But what I think is uh, important though is that it, it's how people feel, right? And mm-hmm. I think in in households now, people are are feeling really concerned about what they can what their households can afford. So I think that's the I think that's the big story yeah. inside of this right now. Yep. But like right now with in an economy where the unemployment rate's three point three percent, it feels very strange to me to be certain of a recession coming because, you know, the labor market has been so tight. Right. But we definitely see elements of slowing and I think the projections for benchmarks is uh is a slowing economy in the early part of 2023. Yeah. Well, Mark, we want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. And if an organization is listening in, whether it's a city or a town or a nonprofit or any other entity out there, if they're looking to have you conduct research for them, looking to help have you help them develop solutions to different problems, whether it's workforce or housing or another challenge, how do they contact you? Um, yeah, well, you can definitely... Uh, Visit our website, donahue.umass.edu, and that website has all the different business units uh, at at the Donahue Institute, and you can see the different work that we do, and then uh, you can click on economic and public policy research to see the things that my team is working on. Folks can also, of course, email me at mmelnick at umass.edu, and uh, always be happy to talk about different research questions people would love to explore. Dr. Mark Melnick, the Director of Economic and Public Policy Research at the UMass Donahue Institute. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. No problem, anytime. And if you are looking to uh, read the workforce study that the Chamber put out in conjunction with all the great research that the UMass Donahue Institute put together, you can head to our website, northcentralmass.com, and you can check out our workforce study, Engaging Hidden and Future Workers to Grow the Local Economy. We want to, again, thank Mark and his team for all the work that they put into that study. This has been the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. Travis Conding, Kat Deal will join you next week. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.